Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Aaron Peterson, partner and global talent acquisition consultant with People Results. In each episode, Aaron interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson. Hey there, Big Fish listeners. You are about to listen to a bonus episode of the podcast, which is an RPO Association webinar that I recorded with two recent podcast guests who have something really interesting in common. They've both spent a good portion of their careers in the RPO world, and they are both now corporate talent acquisition leaders. It's a no-holds-barred discussion on how their leadership experience in an RPO colors their viewpoints and decisions as a corporate TA leader. So if you're considering outsourcing your recruiting, or even if you already have, I think you'll learn a lot from this discussion. Another great source of info on all things RPO is the sponsor of that webinar, the Recruitment Process Outsourcing Association. I've actually been involved with RPOA for several years, and I really believe in their mission, and here it is, to nurture a collaborative community where thought leadership can be created and curated to educate the marketplace about RPO. And it goes on to say, we are committed to advancing, elevating, and promoting recruitment process outsourcing as a strategic hiring solution for organizations seeking to reach their highest potential through their people. So, sounds lofty. And in fact, uh, I have seen it play out that their true goal is really to further uh, the understanding of RPO such that where it's right for a corporation to outsource, that they can do it in the most efficient, most effective way. RPOA is member-driven. And it offers numerous resources, including webinars like the one I recorded and you'll hear next, market reports, case studies, white papers, really easy ways for corporate and RPO leaders to get connected. And you can find all kinds of information, including that at rpoassociation.org and on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook at RPO Association. So whether you are a buyer or a provider, the resources are super practical and insightful. And I urge you to take a look and consider membership. Now, without any further delay, I hope you really enjoy this conversation that I was able to have with Nicole Cox and Rob Navarrete, former Big Fish, and now together in one place to be able to discuss their kind of shared experiences with RPO and also corporate recruiting. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Recruitment Process Outsourcing Association's RPO Leadership Forum a virtual conversation with leaders aligned with the RPOA's mission of nurturing a collaborative community where thought leadership can be created and curated to educate the marketplace about RPO. If this is your first time attending an RPOA webinar, welcome. If you're a returning participant, welcome back. We're very happy to have you. Over the past eight or nine years since we started the RPO Leadership Forum, we hosted over 50 webinars and 100 speakers from top RPO and talent acquisition leaders. Our goal is to always educate the marketplace about the value of RPO and elevate its status in the talent acquisition space. Through the contribution and commitment of our wonderful partners, we're honored to be the place to go for RPO and provide valuable resources to global community members like you. 
This is Lamise Aburama, Executive Director with the RPOA. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming a good friend and a great advocate to the association and our industry, a leader, consultant, advisor, and always charming, the lovely Erin Peterson. She invited a wonderful panel and first-time guests to the RPO Leadership Forum. I can't wait to listen to the conversation. Now, without any, any further ado, I would like to welcome Erin Peterson. Thank you, Lamise. It's great to be here today, and uh, I am honored to uh, be associated with the RPOA and always happy to help. We have a really interesting discussion today with two current corporate talent acquisition leaders who themselves have previously been in RPO organizations. On my podcast, Big Fish in the Talent Pool, I interview heads of talent acquisition, typically corporate heads of talent acquisition, regarding all kinds of things, their best practices, challenges, team configuration. And in the case that they outsource all or part of their recruiting, we talk about their strategy and their experience with RPO as well. But occasionally, I interview the rare leader who has spent a part of their career in talent acquisition for the corporate side and part of it in RPO. And um, they have a unique perspective, typically, as I do from also having been in those shoes. Two of those leaders are recent podcast guests of mine who have themselves a, a really interesting perspective Nicole Cox of OnTrack Incorporated and Rob Navarrete of Willis Towers Watson. I brought them together today to have a discussion about their experiences in RPO and how it guides their corporate talent acquisition leadership decisions. So before we go any further, Rob and Nicole, welcome. Hey, Aaron, welcome. Thank you. So, Nicole, why don't you give us a quick overview of your interesting background in RPO and corporate talent acquisition, and then we'll have Rob do the same. Sure, my pleasure. So 2003, I started with a small boutique RPO on-demand company called Decision Toolbox in Southern California. That company had reduced their size and the owners decided to take the company remote. There were two other recruiters and myself, so we were quite small. And I had the privilege of growing with the company as I grew the team, their processes, systems, and building out various departments over the course of 13 years including on and offshore candidate sourcing teams, marketing, quality, training, customer success teams, implementation, and more. I had outstanding leaders in those departments. And when that company was acquired a a couple of years before my departure, I stayed with that new organization on uh, as one of the last of the four original leaders. And my role was a combination of internal and external facing RPO, on-demand, remote teams, candidate management systems, um, all of that and, and going from privately owned to private equity-led business offered a really rewarding expo- exposure to various aspects of the industry. And as my role came to an end there, I joined Catasys, which is now on track incorporated and uh, in a corporate role, building a previously non-existent talent acquisition department and uh, really enjoying. I've been here almost a year, and we're a growing behavioral health company, supporting those with anxiety, stress, depression, and it's a great place to be where you're providing employment that serves people all across the country. Wow, interesting and very timely for what the country is going through right now. So it's important work you're doing. 
And uh, Rob, tell us about your history and, and background. Sure, absolutely. So thank you. And uh, so nice to speak with you again, Aaron. Um, so I, I would say I grew up in the RPO space, as a matter of fact, right? I worked at a company called Hewitt Associates. And at the time, we were working for a large client or supporting a large client in Canada. We were doing a roughly about 10,000 to 12,000 hires per year uh, in financial services. And so I started as an executive recruiter and then over the years um, grew into leadership roles. And then there was an acquisition with the a company by the name of Aon. And that's when I first met you, Aaron. As a team, we really re-engineered our recruitment process operating model. We went from having a team that was responsible for end-to-end recruitment to having a, you know, segments essentially and through operations uh, focus, uh, sourcing and recruitment delivery essentially. And so I had the good fortune, Aaron took a risk on me to uh, appoint me to the role of North American sourcing leader across Canada and the US. And, and this was a big initiative, right? So again, supporting a client uh, that was uh, about 10 to 12,000 hires per year alone, failure was not really an option. And we had about six months to get this right. And so that meant, you know, creating our standing operating procedures, building out new key performance indicators, all those great tools that we talk about today that have become mainstream in terms of digital interviews, uh, CRM, etc. I had the good fortune of being part of that journey at, uh, at Aon Hewitt. Very, very innovative for its time. We probably had the largest sourcing function in the world. Um, across my team alone, we had about 55. And then we also had an offshore team in Poland. So it was fantastic. I really enjoyed that experience. And then I moved on to corporate to lead talent acquisition as the head of recruitment in-house for um, some large companies as well, Global, uh, AMIA, uh, Capital One, SaaS. Uh, and then most recently, I joined Willis Towers Watson, where I lead recruitment across North America, Canada, the U.S., and uh, the Caribbean. All right. Thank you for that. And what I love about both of your backgrounds is that you have multi-model experience in your RPO experiences. And so, it, you know, it's not just sort of one size fits all. You've, you've delivered RPO to clients in a multiple multitude of ways and then carried that experience to the corporate environment. So let's talk about how that really plays out, especially now your perspective as an experienced leader and someone who has operated in a number of different organizations and a number of different models, I think what we really want to be able to provide for our listeners is an unbiased perspective. Sort of, you have no dog in this hunt, as they say. You know, you aren't working today for an RPO, but you do have the inside knowledge that an RPO brings. And now with sort of that corporate leader hat, how does that change how you think about talent acquisition today? So, so let's get into it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, for example, in leading an RPO, how did you approach team configuration and resource planning that would be really different from how you think about that now in your corporate role? Who wants to go first? Sure, I'll take a step. You know, interestingly, Aaron, not very differently, I would say, to be honest. I think the RPO experience really provided me with, I'm going to say, greater business savvy. And what I mean specifically is an RPO, not only was I trying to design, build, and execute, you know, an optimal recruitment strategy, but I was also looking at margins, right? And so while we do look at costs in corporate environment, there's no profit. We are considered a cost center. So as I look at building my business case around the resourcing that I need and the return on investment, 
investment for whether it be recruiters or sourcers or operational folks, I try to put a business case together that's going to show the value to the executive team, right? So and, and offer you know a commitment. If we do this, we'll be able to get that. And I think that's really, really helped. And it's resonated with senior executives because they, they see that we approach it from a business perspective, understanding the impact that it has to the company's um, bottom line. Nicole? I, I echo I echo uh, what you're saying there, Rob. I, I believe my RPO background really helps me pivot well in a corporate environment, especially in a company that's growing. It also gives credibility to, to the experience for internal stakeholders that you've done this before. You've built teams, you've put in process, you've, you understand strategy and what it takes to get it done. And I do some of the same things I did before. I have specialized teams that get deeply embedded in those parts of the organization. And I have people on the team who are fluid, who can go to where I need them most, which I think is very common in the RPO business. There are certainly some things that I can't do yet because we're not big enough, like having marketing wizards who not only market the position with smart uh, utilization of pay-per-click, um, you know, it becomes, it's very entrepreneurial. You're, you're building that internally as you can. Having analysts, something that was a privilege that I had in RPO, who could really help me get into the data more and understand the story in those. But overall, I just think it's provided a lot of value to me, to the teams I build, and to the corporation. Okay. And so what I'm hearing is not a huge difference in terms of if you have, for example, complete control over how to configure your team as one does typically in a corporate environment versus partial control in uh, an RPO because you have to you know, think about it from the perspective of maybe divide and conquer. As Rob, you were saying that we did at AonQ, we sort of had specialists who were serving across clients. But I guess what I'm hearing is both of you have a little bit of a bias toward that divide and conquer methodology that kind of comes out of RPO. Specialists are okay in a corporate environment? You know, interesting. I, I don't know, Nicole, your perspective, but I think sometimes it depends on the volume of hires, right? So it's very different even in my company. You know, we're about 45,000 employees and how we approach recruitment region to region is a little bit different. Uh, in some regions where we just don't have the hires, then and we can't really have specialists, right? We have HR practitioners who do recruitment on the side of their desk, whereas in environments like in North America, we absolutely have specialists. So let's get into what's best to outsource, in your opinions, functions, roles, best and worst to outsource. What What do you think? I'll start with that one. I think it really depends on the organization and what they have in place, what works for them, what doesn't. Yeah, they may have already built an expertise in a particular area, but most of the time, just generally speaking, what I see RPOs really do best is volume, that repeat type and title. Um, they can build a machine around those types of roles and economies of scale, so to speak. But specialty roles, those one-off positions, in my experience, haven't been as successful um, for RPOs. Um, it's not as profitable for RPOs either. So, again, I think it depends on the areas of expertise for that RPO, and I've just seen a lot struggle with those one-off positions. So, Nicole, your quick answer would be sort of the higher volumes. That's that's a no-brainer. Repeat type okay. and title. Rob? What do you think? Yeah. And 
Well, I agree with that too. Although I have to say as well, I think if you asked me this question six months ago, I'd feel pretty strongly about it. But now I think with COVID-19 pandemic, it's really tested that, right? So I agree with Nicole. It really depends on the company and, and actually the culture too, right? There's also a difference between outsource and offshoring. Um, so nowadays, many of us are working virtually and, and that's okay. Whereas in the past, a model is very much, we need to have someone on site who is working very, very closely with the hiring managers on a day-to-day basis. But generally speaking, the activities that we would uh, ideally outsource would be those repeatable functions, right? Very process-oriented, high-volume activities, just as Nicole described. But I think what's most important is that uh, what the RPO leader would have, if it is going to be outsourced, is, is a seat at the HR table, right? They need to be able to have that close connections, uh, clear communication in terms of what the business strategy is and, and the impact that recruitment has on it. Okay. And so let's take that then to the global perspective. So you mentioned uh, COVID-19 has kind of changed everything. But, you know, I think there is always a question, can an RPO, even a sophisticated one, really deliver global hires? What do you think? Well, from my perspective, you know, I would really love to be able to to say yes, absolutely. But I think it really depends. You know, as I mentioned, even within a company the size of mine, uh, how we approach recruitment is different across the regions, just based on what the hiring demand is there. And so if you find an RPO with a strong enough global footprint everywhere, um, then, then it may be possible. But I find that generally speaking, there seem to be more successful in areas like EMEA, North America, uh, for the most part. But because some of the other regions are maybe um, still emerging, um, they require a level of flexibility that sometimes, you know, an SOW or statement of work just doesn't provide as easily. Mm-hmm. Nicole, what do you think about that? Yeah, Rob and I continue to be aligned. I've seen smaller RPOs attempt to go global, but it's complex and can't be pulled off easily. So if the expertise isn't there, then they fall short and it's not successful for for the company or the RPO. When a global or partners with an RPO for global needs, you know, they should know what they've delivered in that area because you can't be excellent everywhere. Are you working directly with them or have they pulled in a strategic partner? Not saying that one way is right or wrong. I'm just saying it's important for that talent acquisition leader to know. And what obstacles have they faced in that area and challenges do they foresee based on the work the org wants them to do in that market? And multiple providers are a consideration as well. I think that really depends on an individual org's needs and the types of roles. A vendor may have a great expertise in um, everything manufacturing in Asia, but if you need a focus to building a large call center in another country, that may need a different partner. So your approach then would be if I have to deliver hires all over the world and my business strategy calls for RPO that I actually need multiple vendors. Is that right? I think it will depend on what that vendor, what RPO um, has to offer and what they've done previously in the markets that you need to hire in. You don't want to go through that learning curve with them. Not to be uh, cheeky about it, but you know, let's face it, in the sales presentation, everybody says, yes, we can do that. And then they go and figure out how to do it to the best of their ability. So are you still pessimistic about the ability to actually deliver it, even for the big guys? I am. I, I'd really want to know what they've done. And it's okay if you decide to partner with someone who hasn't done it before, but knowing that up front 
and really digging in. Uh, it's, it goes back to behavioral interviewing, right, that we all do in talent acquisition is what have they done? Um, and what, what are you going to learn together? And if you decide to jump in and learn together, that's okay. Just, you know, what what's that process going to look like and how, how are escalations going to be handled and such? Okay. Behavioral interviewing for sales presentations. Is that what you're advocating? Okay. Let's talk about pricing. So this is always maybe a little bit of a touchy topic, but I mean, listen, RPO is a business. They need to make money. Nobody disputes that. Uh, and they are carrying the resources and the risk. And so I think most buyers, when they get into a discussion about RPO, understand that there is a margin that needs to be maintained. But I think how they pay the fee and the margin could vary. And so I'd just be interested in your perspective. You know, if you're advising a buyer, if you're thinking about it from your own perspective, if you were to consider at this point from your corporate TA leadership perspective, if you were to outsource, what's your viewpoint on the best way to pay? Is it the open fee and close fee approach? Is it the monthly management fee plus the per hire fee? I mean, you know, what do you think? More variable cost or more fixed cost? depending on, you know, your budget, the relationship, the geography, what, what's the right way to think about pricing? Sure. I'll take a stab at this one first. Uh, I think, again, it really depends uh, on a number of factors. One is the role profile. So we've talked a little bit about high volume recruiting. I think that is commonly used for RPO and, and that makes a lot of sense there, right? And in that case, it's probably pretty good, at least how I've done it, approach it in the past is to have that monthly management fee and then attached to a baseline and then with opportunities to scale up and down with some variable costs there. But I've also, you know, leveraged an RPO for experienced hires and in which case it, it wasn't quite set up that same way. So I think it's important to look at the fine print. You know, one of the other things I think that's really important in an RPO deal that you may not know before entering it is how much access you actually have to the talent that the RPO actually hires and how that factors into your cost, essentially, right? Uh, Because to your point, we are looking at margins or the RPO is, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee you a senior recruiter or a senior sourcer. So I like to look at that fine print and see what level of influence I'm going to have, because sometimes, you know, it's it's all about the people many times in terms of the effectiveness of the team. That doesn't necessarily mean that a senior recruiter or senior source is going to guarantee you success, right? It's about the competencies. But I, I like to have an understanding of that and really see a partnership. Um, so it's not just about uh, the deal itself, but you know, being part of that selection process. The selection process of the talent that's going to serve you, you're talking about? Yes, exactly. Okay. And then that affects what you're willing to pay. Yes. Interesting. Nicole, what do you think? I think this is a fun question to look at from both seats. As an RPO leader, I price in every which way you can imagine, uh, getting very creative to wrap around the, the client's needs. Sitting in a corporate seat and seeing how many organizations underperform, I definitely have strong SLAs. And I prefer an open and closed fee with a very strong guarantee. I am perfectly fine with an implementation fee because that helps everybody kind of get all the pieces into place. Uh, I find a monthly management fee on the corporate side harder to explain to an organization. It's challenging for to put something tangible to that monthly management fee. And especially if a company is going up and down in, in their needs, then uh, I think that monthly management fee is a harder sell. I, I feel like so many of our answers is, well, it kind of depends, but it, I think yeah. it does depend on 
that individual org and the types of positions. But if I summarize, Rob's more comfortable with the fixed cost with a little bit of variable, but wants more control over the resources. Nicole, you would go more on the side of more variable cost, less fixed cost, and then the strong guarantee. Talk about that. What, what sort of guarantee do you like? Well, I come from an environment where it was a 12-month guarantee with some scale, scaling pricing tied to that. But at a minimum, I I want a 90-day guarantee on my hires. And so uh, what what you mean by that is the replacement at no cost if someone doesn't last after 90 days. Okay, interesting. All right. I like that. Thank you. Wow. Good, nice, detailed answers. That's super helpful. Um, Let's talk about implementation. You've both, I'm sure, been through good and difficult implementations. They can be rough, as we know. So if you were to implement an RPO partner today, what would you say are the most important parts of the implementation to get right? What would you focus on as the process owner? Nicole, why don't you go first? Yeah, I'm I'm happy to take that one first. I think that so many companies are so much in a hurry to get the projects launched and let's get rolling because they have this need. And I think that can really be a mistake in where misconceptions happen and bad experiences can start. So, you know, really taking that time up front. You've heard me say it before, design what you want or deal with what you get. And if you take the time up front to really do an implementation, this isn't a fast food world and this will set you up for success as it will set up the RPO and the company for a better rollout much cleaner implementation uh, than doing some cleanup afterwards. So go slow to go fast in Nicole's world. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Rob, what do you think? Yeah, I I absolutely echo Nicole's comments there. I mean, if I break it down to just a a regular search, right, and I'm sure we've all had conversations with managers to say something went wrong, and we always find out that there was a disconnect at the point of launch, right, an intake. There was a misunderstanding in terms of what the expectations were, the roles, responsibilities, et cetera. And so similarly, with such a large uh, scope and, and responsibility, it's important that that initial launch, that kickoff is is clear and effective. So information, communication overload is absolutely necessary. We really need to embed the RPO partner within uh, our HR um, strategy. And that includes you know, having them in meetings, making sure they understand the, the career ladders, making sure they understand the business priorities and are able to articulate that to candidates clearly, right? You, you, you are representing the, the company, and so you want to have a strong understanding of how the company operates, the culture, et cetera. So rushing it is, is not going to work. Yeah, and I would agree with that. What sometimes happens in an implementation, as you well know, is that the organization has not taken the opportunity to fix their process before they want to outsource it. So it's the proverbial your mess for less. What happens if you're in that go slow to go fast phase and you as the provider realize, oh my goodness, this process that they have needs to be reconfigured or renovated before we take it over? What what do you do? You know, for me, I, I would see that as an opportunity, right? I think, you know, as a, as a client who'd be looking to outsource recruitment, I would be looking to you as a consultant to say, hey, this is my business problem I'm looking to solve. I'm sure you've you supported many different clients with similar needs, although there are some unique nuances here. What are the 
three recommendations that you could put forward based on how you scaled a recruitment function in the past, right? So leverage your knowledge of recruitment and and really ask the right questions and provide solutions. I think that's one of the biggest um, values an RPO can provide, that expertise, that proven success and track record. Agreed. Nicole, what do you think? What do you do? I completely agree with Rob that it's it's all about that dialogue. This goes to um, just that partnership and transparency and selecting a vendor who's flexible and will listen to your needs. And may help dissuade the next issue I want to talk about, and that's the we versus they, which sometimes emerges in an RPO relationship. So you always want to avoid that. You want to be one team. Do you have a perspective on how best to do that? How do you manage a relationship so it doesn't become a we they? I think it starts by selecting the right partner together. My best experiences in RPO were based on strong relationships. And the more approachable the client was, the less fearful the team was about making a mistake or bringing up concerns, the better everything went for hiring managers, for candidates, for the overall experience. And so one thing that I really learned early in my RPO career was get the relationship in place. And now that I'm on the inside, I believe in treating my vendors like they're my own staff. And I pull them all together in meetings and train them on profiles and give thorough feedback and set expectations. And I invite that full transparency back to me. Uh, I don't want any client to be afraid to bring up something that other companies may see as conflict, because I think that's how we get to that transformation. Rob, your thoughts? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that as well. And I would think that uh, as an RPO, you really need to embed yourselves within the business, right? Identify who is the executive sponsor uh, and get them to help you learn how to navigate in a unique culture that this company may have. I think it's important, and I'm sure in the sales pitch, they identified what their offering may be and and what really differentiates them from an in-house recruitment function. Um, And I think that leveraging those tools, those resources, that, you know, competitive intel that if the businesses come to them asking for some outsourced support, it's probably because they've never had this level of support in the past. So being able to use everything available in that toolkit, uh, but by recognizing how the company operates. So you really need to have a clear communication uh, and that transparency. Nicole talked about with um, you know, your, your executive sponsor, the head of, uh, of HR who will include you in that. That would be an ideal scenario. So that kind of plays into my next question about stakeholder management. It's a topic, right? You want to you want to manage your stakeholders. If you're in an RPO, you want to manage your stakeholders well. Those being typically the the buyer, the contact, the, the main person who approves and signs your invoice for payment. Now that you're on this side, if you were the buyer, how would you prefer to be stakeholder managed? What does that really look like from the the recipient perspective? Yeah, I, I think for me, uh, what I would want to see from the RPO is, um, you know, we live in a world where big data is sexy, shall we say, right? And so the RPO has access to so much of it, especially because they are managing to a PL. And so I want to be able to see, you know, the effectiveness of their productivity, the quality, a regular scorecard, recruitment management tools. And this should be shared on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, or, or annual basis. But in addition to that, I also want to see from them any, you know, insights that they can provide as it relates to the talent supply chain, right? So they may have access to various tools that give them a sense in terms of what talent is available and and how we should pivot our strategy, where we want to hire from, uh, et cetera. So I would want to be managed through through data. Okay. 
Data is Rob's answer. Nicole, what do you think? So I think that this goes back to my initial training as well, that I did everything I could to help my talent acquisition leaders, my stakeholders look really good in their job and, and help make it very clear that they selected the right partner. And that's someone who will provide you that data, that frontline market intelligence, who isn't a yes person, but will bring challenging ideas and anticipate my needs, um, you know, bring those challenging ideas without being challenging to work with. And there's a balance in there, right? So just, again, that market intelligence, the data, help me present what you're doing because you're on the front lines of it. Bring your challenging ideas without being challenging to work with. I love that. I'm, I'm definitely going to steal that from you. Okay. <laughs> That's, I, I mean, it, it, it is a really fine line, isn't it? To come with credibility and maybe some critical thinking but be able to communicate it in a way that's helpful and not sort of puts people on the defensive. So, wow, nice. Okay, thank you for that. Process innovation. Is it easier with or without an RPO? What's your opinion? Sure, I'll take a stab at that. I think generally speaking, an RPO is better equipped to handle this for a few reasons. One, uh, they can leverage those economies of scale that Nicole mentioned earlier, just by virtue of the, uh, the the size of the organization. They can solve business problems that you know others might find extremely costly for an in-house recruitment team. And secondly, by virtue of being so process oriented and managing a PL, they're driven by optimization. Now, that being said, companies who are curious by nature, they see the strategic value of recruitment and they are willing to invest, they can still see uh, innovation. In fact, perhaps even more to the extent that, you know, if they have cost constraints, that requires them to be even more creative. So innovation doesn't necessarily equal increased cost. If you have the right creativity, you know, you, you can absolutely get some innovation. But generally speaking, I would say an RPO is more equipped. Yeah, Nicole? I agree. I think RPOs are very accustomed to pivoting quickly and changing process to wrap around the client's needs. But it can also depend on your company. If the company that you're involved in is very entrepreneurial and very technology-driven or process-driven, then they're going to be really open to other ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I think also my experience has been both personally as I led talent acquisition and uh, also an RPO. And as I advise our corporate leaders who are considering outsourcing today, the issue is typically budget. Am I right? Uh, you know, corporate talent acquisition leaders have a very limited budget. They have to get it all done. And all day long, there are vendors chasing them, trying to get a demo in front of them so they can consider buying their new wonderful tool to make everything easier and you, you only have so much money to spend. So one way to do it is through an RPO that's already invested. Does that typically pan out in your experience when that's the motivation? I can innovate by outsourcing with a partner who has access to technology that I can't afford. Does, does it work? In my experience so, on the RPO side, it does um, because they just have more access because of those budgets and the economies of scale play in there too. If they do something for one client, then they can spread that across doing it for others typically. Right. Yeah, exactly. I remember, Aaron, when we launched HireVue, right? We had unlimited uh, number of HireVue interviews that could be conducted. And, and what company could do that, especially if you're only hiring a few hundred hires per year? It, it wasn't uh, possible back then. Right. Yeah, the whole video interviewing origins when there was still a lot of pushback, that has all gone away, though, hasn't it? Now, mm -hmm. as we um, we are forced to innovate, uh, even the companies that, that weren't inclined to begin with. So, yeah, great example. Thank you, Rob. 
So what's your perspective on candidate experience? The talent board has obviously, uh, you know, created this whole incentive standards, you know, an ability to measure, truly measure and hold yourself up against other organizations with regard to how happy your candidates are, you know, sitting where you sit now, do you believe you can really move the needle on candidate experience more easily with an RPO partner, or is does that become more difficult, or is it just basically the same challenges? I think it's the same challenge. I think that you can select an RPO vendor who doesn't make it a priority or has the right systems in place. In a corporate environment, you may have to wait for some of it uh, because you may not have the technology yet. But whether the company is small or large, if the leader initiative in talent acquisition is to uh, make sure the candidates have a great experience or communicated with, know where they are in the process and um, have a streamlined interview process. That's on that talent acquisition leader who's in place typically if there's RPO or not. So I think that it can be very much the same. Rob, your thoughts? Yeah. And so I, I would agree. I think the recruitment challenges themselves or the business problems you're looking to solve for in creating a candidate experience strategy uh, are the same, but how you may approach it may differ if you're just managing in-house or if you're collaborating with an RPO function. I, I think a lot of the activities associated with the candidate experience are on-site, as a matter of fact. What happens when the candidate arrives for the interview and, and how is that executed? And so, therefore, having someone on-site to help facilitate some of that process you know, walking them to the interview room, giving an agenda to them, having a parking spot, etc. Um, I think a lot of those activities are best managed in-house. You could ask an RPO to do that, but they would probably come with a, at a high cost. However, recently I was talking to an RPO for a deal we were looking at, and they had an interesting solution that I don't think we could have done in-house, and that was a candidate experience center, almost like a help desk, if you will. And essentially, there are a lot of questions that come to recruiters that really take away recruiters' time from, you know, recruiting and sourcing, which we absolutely want them to do, to to respond to questions that, you know, really someone in a help desk could probably respond to. Um, And so I was really, really interested in that particular solution because that would really help with our overall candidate experience. And so I think it's quite possible that we could have a better solution through that because, again, leveraging those economies of scale. We we probably couldn't build something like that in-house, but an RPO could. But there are things that we could still do in-house that that an RPO may not be able to do. Okay. And interesting point. And uh, grabbing onto your, you know, having someone on site to be able to greet a candidate, create a good candidate experience when uh, people come for an interview. I've heard recently about some organizations because they've had to go completely virtual with their interview process, that they have indeed someone who's greeting them in a virtual room and, you know, kind of answering the questions, keeping them warm, you know, making sure that they have everything they need, preparing them for the next interview. It's definitely that sort of on-site candidate experience person. So one can pay attention to that virtually too. And I think more and more we're going to have to. Let's talk about metrics. You know, you both made reference to data is important, but what's the most important thing? Like what, what do you really look at and what did you consider to be really important when you were working in an RPO environment? And what would be different today? Like, what would you really want to know on a pretty frequent basis to know if there were issues or to see around the corner and try and figure out if you should expect some noise from a particular business unit? You know, what what, what helps you determine that? Yeah, I can, I can start on this. I'm a data junkie, like I said before. And there's some that just aren't going to be surprising, you know, time to fill, cost per hire, what the funnel ratios look like and the story behind the funnel ratios. 
there are a few in here that uh, that I've always kind of lived and breathed by, and one is time to present the candidate who was ultimately hired. Um, that can tell a story. I want to see the difference between the time the candidate was presented and the time the candidate accepted a role, because if there's big gaps, there's big opportunities. And satisfaction scores from candidates, I want to know their satisfaction with the recruiting process and with their interview process with the hiring manager, because that will give us some areas to course correct um, and train and develop some leaders. And the satisfaction scores from hiring managers as well. Another that is important to me is how quickly the hiring managers are getting qualified candidates. So I've always liked to see at least three candidates presented in a certain amount of time, uh, depending on the on the role. So I guess that really just shows service orientation. Good. Interesting. I, I really like the point about the time to present the candidate who ultimately got hired. Uh, that has to do with, ultimately, it's a perception issue on the part of the hiring manager, isn't it? That they, they felt like they saw the right people quickly, bottom line. And then it's a matter of getting them through the rest of the process, which has a lot of dependencies, but interesting. Rob, Rob, what do you think? What do you think is the most important measure or measures? Wow. Okay. Well, first of all, I absolutely love that metric, Nicole, that you shared. And that's something that I think for me, I've also had with a, an RPO is almost like a phase two, right? So I, I have those typical key performance indicators, which we all know about, right? Around quality time and time to fill, conversion ratios, et cetera, uh, candidate and hiring manager experience. Obviously, very, very important. We want to know the voice of our customer. What are they saying? Because they're getting the, the service. And so we want to make sure service delivery is optimal, but then take it to the next level and say, okay, where are our bottlenecks? So what does that time and process really look like at each stage of the recruitment uh, funnel? Uh, and at what point did we identify the, the selected candidate? Because I think, you know, through so from traditional recruiting methods, managers want to continue to interview and interview and interview and don't necessarily recognize that, uh, you know, the talent supply chain may be very low. It's a very competitive market. We're lucky to be getting two meetings uh, with this candidate and we need to move quickly. So if we identified them early in the stage, why is it that we didn't hire them for four months? You know, what was it that was missing? And so as part of that phase two, I would love that consultative approach from an RPO, which I think comes over time. Right. And uh, if it takes you that long to hire the right person, you wonder, were there other right people who fell out in the in the meantime? Right. That's always the concern. Okay. And then with regard to metrics, who's the right team to measure it? Do you keep that in-house and have your own people do the measuring so that you can make sure you don't have to question any of the data? Or do you pretty much trust your RPO partner? Listen, I trust you with everything else. Just make sure your numbers are right. What do you think? Um, I think trust but verify. I think the uh, RPO vendor should report their metrics and data share and then you're co collaborating where things might be amiss because that just could be an opportunity to improve communication. Okay. Yeah, right. I absolutely agree. Just like if you're going to have a home renovation, you should probably, you know, talk to a few different people to make sure that you're selecting the right partner for you um, and you're going to be able to hold them accountable. And, you know, when you go into a deal with an RPO, you have options, right? You don't necessarily need to go for the full end to end. It's probably a good choice, right? Because that's one of the reasons why you're reaching out to them, because the capability that you probably in-house just do not have, right? So I think it's important to listen to the metrics that they're providing you and 
ask questions along the way because, you know, no one's perfect. And I've been in many sessions with RPOs and they've delivered some numbers and knowing uh, and looking things through the lens of my senior executives, I can anticipate some questions they'll have. And that actually creates for, for great discussion and, and, and great gathering uh, of information that is actually helpful because I later would then share that with our with our clients. And so I, I agree completely with Nicole. I, I think, you know, uh, it's right to get them to use their mechanisms to me- to measure it, but you have to validate. Okay. And let's get practical about that validation. As a talent acquisition leader, you don't have time to check the numbers. Do you have an analyst on your team that reviews everything? Do you partner with finance? What What's the way to do it? I was going to say, for me, it really depends. Uh, you know, in, in some cases, I've had the pleasure of having a really great analyst. And if not, then I would partner with a, a finance professional. And then otherwise, it's myself. And that's one of the great benefits of having been an RPO myself, because I can recognize things. I, I, I've, it's not my first rodeo, and I can anticipate some, some trends. Love it. Nicole? Absolutely. My answer. My Thanks. same answer okay. that I, I would love to have an analyst. I don't have one yet. So um, I'm doing that myself right now. All right. And I'm, and thank you for that. I'm just always interested in getting really practical because the, uh, the realities of running a talent acquisition team and an RPO team is at the end of the day, it's about cost, resources, org design, allocation of all the to-dos, and there's never enough time or money <laughs> or people. So it comes to um, you know making some smart decisions. So thank you for that perspective. Any final thoughts on how your RPO experience guides your thinking today as a talent acquisition leader? And Nicole, I'll have you go first and then Rob. Okay, thanks. So there's many things, but to narrow it down, value with process creative solutions. I find way to say yes, we can make that happen if. And service orientation with my internal clients and really coming to the table as a talent acquisition subject matter expert is having that posture you know, that builds confidence with your internal team. So that's my short answer. Rob? Yeah. And so I think I would say that I wouldn't be as an effective TA leader today without my RPO experience. Uh, having had the pleasure of leading large size teams, uh, both within RPO and then in corporate, I think it adds a level of credibility uh, to the table. And the way I approach things is very, in my mind, business oriented, right? So I am looking at the data very closely. Although we're not looking at P&L, I am looking at costs in a different way than perhaps I wouldn't have if I did not have the RPO experience. And, you know, I can only speak to my experience and working with executives, and that seems to resonate with them. You know, they are very numbers focused. To your point, Aaron, it's about the budget. And so what the impact is and what their return on investment is going to be. And then, you know, holding myself accountable as my team in terms of the strategy that we're uh, putting forward and then the outcome of that strategy. All right. And if we get all that right, we can actually change people's lives, right? And that's the soft side of talent acquisition. And I think why many of us got into it in the first place is we actually have this unique opportunity to stand in the crossroads with a hiring manager and a a human being who wants to do a particular job and literally change their lives. But boy, the machinations behind all that, they're complicated. Am I right? Very much so. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Well, thank you for illuminating that for all of us and for the listeners of this webcast. It's been a pleasure to um, talk to you guys. Thank you for your honesty and your depth of experience and background and really appreciate it. And with that, I will hand it back over to Lamise. 
Thank you, Erin. And wow, wow, conversation, guys. That was, uh, like Erin said, very illuminating. I'm a big fan of Erin's podcast, Big Fish in the Talent Pool, and I probably listened to both of you on the podcast, but it's such a pleasure having both of you on this call and having you within uh, this platform. So thank you so much for the opportunity of listening to your insights. Erin, thank you so much for a wonderful discussion. And for our audience, thank you for being on our call. Please join us for a future RPO leadership panel in the near future and uh, stay connected on our media on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you all and have a wonderful day. Thank you, Louise. Take care. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ERE.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Erin directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Erin on Twitter at Erin McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com.